Hello, this sermon audio is a ministry of the Town Church in Fort Collins, Colorado. If you would like to learn more about us, how to connect, or how to support us, go to our website, thetownchurch.org. While listening to the Bible preached is a healthy part of our spiritual formation, it is not the whole picture. So if you aren't a part of a local church, we encourage you to prayerfully commit to a local body of believers where you live. We're glad you can join us, and we hope God uses the following sermon to reveal more of His glory to you. Hey, good morning. It's good to be with you. I said that already. I'll say it again. It's, it's really good to be with you all this morning, a family together. So we are looking at God's Word this morning. If you uh, need a Bible, um, Randy has some here in the back. Uh, just raise your hand and he can get you one. If you don't have one of the journals and you want one of those, I think there's some on the table as well. So just uh, throw up your hand if you need a Bible. We can get you one. They're also on the table as you walk in. We will be looking at God's Word this morning. So Ezra chapter 3 is what we are looking at. If you want to make your way there, it's in the Old Testament, which I was corrected last week by my own head, that that's in the front half of your Bible, the Old Testament, Ezra Um, And then Nehemiah is what we'll be moving into over the weeks to come. We have kids with us this morning in our gathering. This is intentional. Uh, Every other week we have our elementary students in here with us. This is something we value. So if it seems squirmy in here, that's okay. Um, We value kids being in here learning, reading. So kids, if you uh, need help finding Ezra, ask, ask a parent, ask somebody next to you, and they can help you find Ezra as well. Here's where we um, will begin. Last week, we had a a welcome dessert at our house. Um, We love having these. In part, um, Kirsten is a a great host. Carrie does a great job of getting uh, delicious things for us to eat. Um, And Josh and Eric and Richard and and Cassie, uh, I'm forgetting people, Justin was there. Um, We had a group of people who are part of the church who were there. And um, we don't really do a whole lot other than get, we get to eat snacks, and we get to interact with you all. So it's good to be with you at, uh, during those times. And one thing we've noticed over the months and years of having those welcome desserts, those uh, desserts for new people to the church, is this, that a lot of new people, at least to our church, are, are new to Fort Collins or, or the area. They have moved in recently. They've moved into the area Recently, and we're so glad that um, so many of you have moved here. We are. We're really glad that you've moved here. We're, we're glad that you've connected to the church. But I will tell you this about myself I hate moving. We're glad you moved here. We're glad you had to do that work. But, but I hate moving. I really don't like moving. The, the, the whole act of packing up, labeling boxes, taking beds apart trying to find a truck that they will fit on, only to get to the next place and take those beds out and put them all back together. And inevitably, you lose like three pieces and you're not sure where they went. And so your bed's kind of sideways or whatever. I I really don't like moving. There's nothing about it that I like. Um, You've all probably heard me say this before if you've been around. Um, But I believe that this isn't biblical, um, maybe. um, So don't write it down as a note. Um, I believe that moving is a part of the fall. Think about it. When Adam and Eve sinned, what did God do? He said, move, right? And so a part of that had to have been packing up boxes, right? 
Now, they didn't have wardrobe boxes because they didn't have a wardrobe. Think about that. Um, but but they, had to, uh, the, uh, they had to pack up and move. Moving is a miserable task. From my perspective, maybe you love it, um, but, but we all have a, a way that we like to pack things, right? We all have a way in which we like to pack things. We have an order of what we pack first, right? Based on, maybe for you, it's based on what's easiest to pack, right? I'm going to do this because I'll be able to knock this out and, and it'll make me feel good about what I'm able to pack. Maybe for you, you pack um, the things that you know you're not going to need over the next couple months because it's going to take you a couple months to pack everything and I, I don't really need those things. Here's my little tip. Just get rid of it. If it's not going to be used for a couple months, just throw it away. Um, we all have ways we like to pack. We also have ways that we like to unpack when we get to the new place. What do you unpack first? What, what do you unpack first? Somebody said bathroom stuff, right? Kitchen stuff. Here's what, here's what I've real, realized. Um, how we unpack reveals a lot about us, right? How we unpack reveals a lot about us. What do we unpack first? What, are, what, do, we, what do you still have in boxes in your basement that you've never unpacked, right? That should be thrown out for sure. Um, what we unpack first, I think, reveals a lot about us. For, so for us, um, and it's been several months since we've moved from a new state, um, but we uh, labeled all the boxes of our children's toys with really ba- big letters um, so that we could unpack those things first. Now, uh, there's maybe a couple reasons that we did that. You can um, just speculate on which is true. One, we wanted so badly to please our children when we got to the new destination that they would be able to play with the things that they loved to play with. We cared so much about them. Or we knew that we needed to get some stuff done, and we knew that the, to do that, they needed their toys. So we pack and unpack those things, um, unpack those things first. What we unpack first reveals something about our lives. And it goes on and on. The same is true about vacations, right? You go on vacation. When you return home, what do you unpack first? What's the first thing you do? You check the mail, right, to make sure there's not, uh, like, sweepstakes winning in there, right? Um, and, and then you go to unpack. What we unpack reveals a lot about our lives. Watch it. Watch for it next time. When you begin to unpack, when you begin to put things away, um, what do you unpack first? We have priorities about how we do these things. In Ezra chapter 3, we learn from the people about what they unpack first, so to speak, about what they bring out, about what they do first as they move to this new place. They're in exile, and they're moving back in. Remember this, the the people of God have been exiled to a land not their own. They've been exiled for years and years and years, 70-plus years. They're now returning home in waves. Three waves of people who are coming home. We'll see that over the next weeks. Um, In this first wave, some 43,000 people coming back to their villages, coming back to their hometowns, coming back to places of familiarity for many of them, some of them not knowing uh, what it was going to be like because their families died when they were in exile, so they're new to this place and they're coming back to that. What they do first and how they respond to, to their new environment reveals quite a bit about who they are as a people. What they do first 
when they land reveals quite a bit about who they are as a people. It's the beginning stages for them of restoration, of being restored as a, a people. Where did it start? If God sovereignly directs Cyrus to send the people back home, which we saw last week he did, and if the restoration of the city and the temple and the wall has all been funded, either by the people who are sending them back or by Cyrus himself, where do the people start? What is their priority as they return back home? God has a plan to be worshipped. We saw that last week. He has a plan to be worshipped. His worship is their restoration. I I would argue uh, his worship is also our restoration. It's the culmination of our restoration. It's his plan from the very beginning. So how do the people respond to that plan? What does that uh, that response then reveal about them as a people? And let let me just ask us this. How do we respond to the truth that God has a plan for us to worship him. And related to that, what is revealed about us in that response? God has a plan for us to worship him even in the midst of hard things, even in the midst of good things. He has a plan for us to worship him. And what's revealed about us in that response? What are our priorities in that sphere? We see from the very beginning of chapter 3, the people come back and they get to work. They get to work doing what? They get to work rebuilding the altar. That's what we see first, verses 1 through 7. In fact, let me read this. If you'll follow along, chapter 3, verses 1 through 7. When the seventh month came and the children of Israel were in the towns, the people gathered as one man to Jerusalem. Then arose Jeshua, the son of Josadak, with his fellow priests, and Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, with his kinsmen, and they rebuilt the altar of God of Israel, the God of Israel, to offer burnt offerings on it, as it is written in the law of Moses, the man of God. They set the altar in its place, for fear was on them because of the peoples of the lands, and they offered burnt offerings on it to the Lord, burnt offerings morning and evening. And they kept the feast of booze, as it is written, and offered the daily burnt offerings by number according to the rule, as each day required. And after that, the regular burnt offerings, the offerings at the new moon and at all appointed feasts of the Lord, and the offerings of everyone who made a freewill offering to the Lord. Verse 6, from the first day of the seventh month, they began to offer burnt offerings to the Lord, but the foundation of the temple of the Lord was not yet laid. So they gave money to the masons and the carpenters and food and drink and oil to the Sidonians and the Tyrians to bring cedar trees from Lebanon to the, to the sea, to Joppa, according to the grant that they had from Cyrus, king of Persia. We'll stop there. Here's what's happening. The people are coming back to their towns. They're coming back to their homes. They're, they're resettling into their place, probably unpacking their stuff into their homes. They're trying to find out where their homes are. They're trying to find out where the the homes of the people who lived there before that they don't know where those homes are, trying to find out where that is so they can begin to resettle. Some of these people have never been here, but they're coming back in. So they're unpacking. 
They're, they're settling in. You can imagine the, the curbs of the streets lined with broken down cardboard boxes, right? Bags of newspaper that they had packed the dishes in and all of that just lined. All of these people coming back. Verse 1 tells us that they were in their towns. What's right after that, though? They didn't stay there long. Why? Because it was customary for the Jewish people to make a pilgrimage to the holy city of Jerusalem. This was a significant month of celebration for the people. And so they made, every year, a journey to Jerusalem to celebrate. Imagine this, 43,000 plus people gathering in Jerusalem just after they had settled into their homes. Right? As they're coming back, and we're told that Jeshua and Zerubbabel and all of their relatives and the, and the people gathered. We see that in verse 2. To do what? To do what? To build the altar of the God of Israel to offer burnt offerings on it. The rebuilding of the altar is, is their priority. And what does that reveal about them? It reveals the priority, the starting point of worship. The rebuilding of the altar reveals this priority for them, the starting point for their worship. Let's get into their their world a little bit, though. They had to have wanted to start settling, right? They they had to have this this desire to, to just simply settle. Have you been there? I think we've all been there. Where you just get back from a trip or you've unpacked after moving and you simply want to begin to settle in. Have you ever done that? You come back from a long trip and you know that there's something on the calendar and it just weighs heavy on you because you don't want to get back in the car and do it and do something, whatever it is. You just want to settle in. You want to just be home. How about for you parents? You've probably experienced this where you've had a brand new baby and you want to hide away in your homes for weeks right? Some of you for years, right? And and you just want to settle in. How many of you um, newly married couples? You've just gotten married and the stress of the wedding is now over and you're back from your honeymoon and you have one thing on your mind. And besides that, you also want to settle into your home. You just want to settle, Imagine years of being exiled, living in a land not your own, and, and, and there's uncertainty, and there's unknowns, and there's a lot of new things. There's this new era that's on the horizon for you. But for these people, the priority was the worship of God. They're unsettling into their, their places, or they're their settling into their places. They, they wanted to be together, though, in Jerusalem. So they all travel up to the city, and they begin rebuilding the altar. On the altar, what happens? Animals are sacrificed to atone for sin. Hang with me for just a second so we can see the, the trajectory of what's going on. 
On the altar, animals were sacrificed to cover the sins of the people. The blood of the animals was used to cover over or atone for the sins of the people. Then the animal would be burned on the altar. And not just any altar. We're told at the end of Exodus chapter 20, you can read it later this week, that the altar could not be made out of cut stones. Very specific instructions. The stones had to be untouched by tools. The altar had to be raised above the people, but the priest could not walk up the stairs of the altar. He had to walk up a ramp so that his nakedness would not be, uh, uh, he wouldn't be uncovered. He wouldn't be seen in his nakedness. I don't know if he was wearing a hospital gown that was open in the back or what that looked like. Um, But there were very specific laws about the altar. This was a set-aside task done by set-aside priests in a set-aside temple or on the grounds of a very set-aside temple on a very specific kind of altar. They have gone years without this setup. They've gone years without this, and they're now back at the site where the temple was, where the altar was, and their priority is to build the altar. Why? So that offerings could be made to the Lord. What's going on? So that their sins would be covered. So that their sins would be atoned. So that their sins would be dealt with. This is an aspect of their worship. And I would say it's the starting point. It is the starting point of their worship. It's the priority. The rebuilding of the altar reveals their priority of worship. Can I just remind us, how did restoration begin for them? Right? How was how we read here? How, how is it beginning? The altar. That's how it's beginning. The covering of their sin. Restoration for the people began at the altar confessing sin, making sin known, covering over sin, dealing with sin. We've talked about this over the last few weeks, but true restoration, true renewal, true revival, if you will, will not happen without a recognition of and a confession of sin, a proper dealing with sin. Restoration will not happen without a proper recognition of and dealing with sin. If their priority ultimately was worship, if that was the priority, they knew God was calling them back to that, they knew that's what restoration looked like. If that was the end, that was the culmination, sin had to be covered first. And so they get back to work rebuilding the altar. Christian, brother or sister, listen well. Our sin has been dealt with through the sacrifice of Christ on the cross. His blood was shed, and we no longer make annual, regular pilgrimages to a specific place. We're able to approach the throne of grace with confidence. We're able to worship because of Jesus. And so my question for my own heart and my question for yours, if that's true and it is, have we taken all of this for granted? Because of Jesus, and I would say because of Jesus in America, it's now easy for us to worship through the reading of the word and the singing of songs and and through prayer. And I wonder if gathering together to worship is less of a priority because we're not regularly reminded of our sin through a physical sacrifice that we have to make. You thought about this? And so it just becomes kind of a, whatever. 
These people were gathering in mass to rebuild the altar. This was a corporate endeavor for them. Remember what it is. The, the corporate endeavor for them was a dealing with their sin. This was a, a corporate endeavor so that they would deal with the sin and be made right in right standing with God so that they could worship. How often do we then minimize the importance of the worship of God together for nearly anything that comes up? JR's, uh, not JR, not this JR, although nice mustache. Um, uh, JR as in junior, uh, junior's little league game, right? We'll take off to that. That's not sin. And I'm speaking from having lots of juniors that we have games that, that we attend. A family hike, skiing, being tired or too busy, being out too late the night before, having a, a busy week ahead of us. Whatever it is that we have in line, I would ask the question of my heart of, of ours, is the worship of our God together a priority Or, maybe we've not thought about it this way, or has the once-for-all sacrifice of Jesus in some ways minimized our regular reminder to draw near? Does that make sense? That that we've taken it for granted that that Jesus has given his life once for all, and so we're kind of like, eh, we'll hit it when we can. And I'm not just talking about being here. This is not just me with an attendance chart checking off. I'm just saying, is it our desire to be together, to recognize first our sin and our need for a Savior? Gathering together like that ought to be a joy. It ought to be our delight. It ought to be the the greatest desire to be with other believers during, during the week, especially when we're recognizing together that our sin has been dealt with. It has been dealt with so that we can move toward worshiping our God together, the the God who has made it possible through the sacrifice of his son. Friends, it's because of Jesus' blood shed that our sins have been covered, have been removed, have been dealt with finally, and we're able to worship. Therefore, every time we come together to worship, we are acknowledging together that Jesus' sacrifice secured for us acceptance with God through his atonement for the forgiveness of sin. That was a mouthful. Let me simplify it, make it brief. In other words, when we gather, we acknowledge our sin has been dealt with. You thought about that? When we gather like this, we acknowledge together our sin has been dealt with. Is this recognition a priority for us? Or is it like, meh, we'll we'll get it when we can. Uh, Have we minimized the importance of gathering to recognize the price that was paid to gain access to the God who's called us into his family? We're told in verse 4 that the people kept the Feast of Booths. 
that they offered daily burnt offerings. If you heard those uh, offering, 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 offering was listed several times in there. They, they offered the daily burnt offerings at the, the feast of the Lord. Starting on the first day of the seventh month, they began to offer burnt offerings on the altar that they had together built as a priority. All of that, we're told in verses 2 and 4, and in other places, is just as it is written, or exactly as uh, exactly to the number that is written in the rules given by God, or as it is written in the law of Moses. The rebuilding of the altar reveals for the people and for us, as we look in, the priority of worship. That starting point for them of worship was a dealing of sin, and it also reveals the importance for them of pride. Proper worship. It reveals uh, to them uh, and to us the importance of proper worship. Here's what I mean. Uh, the people didn't come back to Jerusalem and say, they did not come back and say, you know, it's been 70 years, 70, 80 years. It's been a lot of years. And technology has been updated, and a lot of things have changed over the years, and, and some of the stuff we've done over the years has been outdated. So let's do this our way. That, that's not the posture they had. They did exactly as they had been instructed in the Word of God, even though they had been exiled, even though they had been away from it. Now they're coming back, and they long to do it the way that God had commanded them to do it. The the proper worship of God was extremely important to them. The Feast of Booths that's mentioned in verse 4 is described in detail over 27 verses in the book of Numbers. Chapter 29, you can read it sometime this week and see the details of how this was to be celebrated. Over a period of eight days, they were to live in tents or in booths. Um, to remind them of their, the temporary dwelling and the wandering in the wilderness after Egypt. And, and detailed out in that description in, in the book of Numbers, during that week, 219 animals were killed. A different number, but a very specific number of animals killed every day, not to mention the different kinds of grain offerings and flower offerings and, and all of that they were to offer every day. Detailed, meticulous worship of God. All of these sacrifices to remind them again of what? Why are they making sacrifices? To remind them of and to cover over their sin. We're told in Ezra... Um, here in Ezra, that they worshiped God exactly as they had been instructed. They were concerned about the proper worship of God because the proper worship of God for them revealed their sin and their need for a God to cover it. So it had to be the way in which it was written out for them. Now, While we don't now walk through, because of Christ, walk through the lawful observances the Jews of the Old Covenant followed, while we don't walk through all of those things, can I bring it in for us to consider here? That's the the work that we have to do. We read of the Old Testament things before Christ and the things that pointed forward to Christ, and we now get to read about the things that, that we see in Christ and how those things were fulfilled. So let me bring it in for us. And just ask some questions. Are we concerned with the proper worship of God? And you're, you're asking, really? Is a scoreboard in the proper worship of God? Right? Or, or, or whatever. How does this all work out? Do we consider 
our worship together in sincerity, sincerely. Considering the songs that we sing, not just mouthing the words, but thinking through the songs that have been chosen for our gathering together. Considering the word of God that is read, the word of God that is studied, the word of God that's applied, the word of God that we gather around um, uh, uh, in the, the weeks that follow the actual teaching of the word. Are we sincerely considering the prayers that are prayed, the prayers of confession, the, the prayer, uh, prayers that are prayed over us during the gathering, the ways in which we pray before and after the gathering? Do we consider the weighty meaning of the bread and the wine in communion? Uh, Paul says in, in 1 Corinthians 11, verses 27 and 28, that we're not to take the elements, the bread and the wine, in an unworthy manner, but we're to examine ourselves. Are we doing that? Do we approach the gathered worship of God as we consider that our sin has been covered? Do we approach the gathered worship of God in that kind of sincerity? Sure, we're not commanded to slaughter 219 animals, especially in Colorado. Shame on you. And we're not, we're not commanded to do these things on certain days, and we don't have certain ways in which we have to work through all of these things, but do we display the same kind of thoughtful, intentional, prioritized reverence in our worship? Do we consider it with that kind of gravity? This is um, going to sound nitpicky, and, and many of you might think, oh, he's talking to me. Um, if that's what you're thinking, maybe that's the spirit, not me. I, I don't know. Deal, deal with this, however. I, I think this is a way that we can apply this. It's a way, not the only way. It's going to be a shocker for some of you. We begin every Sunday at 930. And we have a whole flow of how we work through things. And it's very intentional so that we can see the whole story of the gospel being played out. Uh, we have an order or, or a liturgy that walks us through the beauty of the gospel. And can I just say, if you're late, you miss out. If you're late, we miss out on you being here. I have no one in mind, by the way. That's God's help on me. Um, I have no one in mind there. Just apply that however it needs to be applied. When, when we don't consider the weight of our sin and the immensity of the grace of God in, in the elements that we're taking, I think we're, we're off. Our, our worship then can be hollow or, or just becomes religious. Is the proper worship of God a priority to you? And I'm not just talking primarily about Sunday, although the Sunday is significant, where we gather together with others who are recognizing their need. We're told of all of these details of the rebuilding of the altar and their worship at the end of verse 6. We're told, but the foundation of the temple was not, uh, of the Lord was not yet laid. I don't know if you saw that when, when we were reading it. It's, it's foreshadowing to what is to come. The altar was there. The weight of the sin and its consequences are able to be dealt with. But the right worship of God had not yet been completely restored. So verse 7 tells us that they began to give money to the construction workers. 
And just like you do with anyone who's doing construction on your home or anything else, they also gave them food and drink. You see that? All right, take note. Um, They gave food and drink to the people um, to bring in large cedar trees, all of it done by permission of the king of Persia. Don't forget that. All of that was done by the permission of, the granting of, the, the king of Persia. They noticed, though, that the foundation of the temple had not been laid, and so they go to work because for them, that's where proper worship happens as they gather together. And so we read on that the rebuilding of the temple begins. Look at verse 8. Now in the second year after their coming to the house of God at Jerusalem, in the second month, Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Jeshua, the son of Josadak, made a beginning together with, with the rest of their kinsmen, the priests and the Levites, and all who had come to Jerusalem from the, from the captivity. They appointed the Levites from 20 years old and upward to supervise the work of the house of the Lord. And Jeshua with, the son, with his sons and his brothers and Cadmiel and his sons and the sons of Judah together supervised the workmen in the house of God, along with the sons of Henadad and the Levites, and their sons and their brothers. We'll stop there. In the rebuilding of the temple, here's what we see. In the rebuilding of the temple, what is revealed about the people? What's revealed about the people? It's not a mistake that the rebuilding of the temple began in the exact month, if you know biblical history, in the exact same month as the original temple that was built. In the exact same month. Second Chronicles chapter 3, you can read about that. As well, this week, you've got a lot of reading to do. The first temple was extremely important for the people. This was commanded by God. So they began, now in Ezra, they began rebuilding the temple in the same month as the first temple was rebuilt. We're told that Zerubbabel and Jeshua began rebuilding with the rest of their families, the priests, the Levites, anyone else who came back from captivity. They, They all came back and everyone got to work. There were supervisors who were there. Right? They were enlisted to oversee the project. They had lay people there who, who were supervising Zerubbabel. Right? They had Levites of responsible age supervising. A Levite is a man who is called by God to serve in the reading of and, and in the instruction of the Torah, the first five books of what we have as the Bible, the, the law for the people. The Levites were there supervising. The priests were there supervising. Jeshua. A priest was the representative of the people to God. They had, here's what I think the author is trying to tell us, they had supervisors from every walk there, but he points out the Levites and the priests were there to supervise. Now, why do you think they would have the priests and the Levites supervising in construction? OSHA is not happy about that. Why are these people, the Levites and the priests, called in to supervise in the rebuilding of the temple? Because it's about worship, right? They wanted to make sure that the temple was built properly. Not properly like, do those beams line up and and all of that. That's not their biggest concern. They wanted to make sure it was in line with the way that God had meticulously designed it to be built. The rebuilding of the temple reveals something about the people. The way in which they're rebuilding reveals the object of their worship. Let me show you what I mean. 
the rebuilding of the, of the temple reveals the object of their worship. The people are the ones at work rebuilding the temple, and I'm sure the temptation may be there for them to take credit, right? There's a whole list of names that are given of people who had come back to rebuild the temple. I'm sure that temptation must have been there. Look at what we have done. Have you ever been to a groundbreaking ceremony? Right, or, or some new project, some new construction that's about to happen, right? The, the, the beginning of the rebuilding process is uh, about to start. And what happens at this groundbreaking ceremony? All of these really well-dressed people, not a Carhartt coat in sight. All of these well-dressed dignitaries with fake hard hats and gold shovels show up, Right? And, 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 and here's what we see in that the city officials come in, maybe the mayor's invited, and, and they're all applauded, right, as they stick a shovel in the ground, nowhere near where the real building is going to be built. It's all just a hoax, right? Here, here's what's happening. These people have played a significant role in this, so let's applaud them and, 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 and just show how much effort they've put into this and what, what greatness they have. But what do we see of the people in the book of Ezra? Look at verse 10. It says, And when the builders laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord, the priests in their vestments came forward with trumpets, and the Levites, the son of Asaph, with cymbals to praise the Lord according to the directions of David, king of Israel. And they sang responsively, praising and giving thanks to the Lord. And what they say, what they sing, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever toward Israel. And all the people shouted with a great shout when they praised the Lord, because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. Right? Who, who did they applaud? God. The foundation of the temple had been laid. It wasn't the mayor or even the people who were laboring over the work. They got together at the beginning of the rebuilding process, and their actions revealed the object of their worship. They were not rebuilding the temple so that they could get fame or so that they could get recognition. They were rebuilding the temple so that God would be praised, that God would be honored, that God would be worshipped. They knew very well the object of their worship was God. And it was clear to them. And what was their song? Again, He is good. His steadfast love endures forever toward Israel. This is a song that David sang years and years before this. Catch this. Which means what? Which means that God's steadfast love was on them even in exile. Even in the last years where they probably felt abandoned, they're able to sing, for he's good, and his steadfast love endures forever. Remember that, friend. Whatever it is you are walking through right now, whatever it is that you have walked through over the years and years in the past, God is still good, And I'll tell you, I don't know if I know what the definition of that really means right now, but he is. 
And his steadfast love endures forever. His people are able to sing that. They knew their lives, even in exile, and even their work now was about the worship of God. The rebuilding of the altar and the laying of the foundation of the temple revealed that the object of their worship was not self and my, my pitiful experiences that I've had, but, but was about the God who loves them. And his love endures, and he's still good. Verse 11 tells us that the people sang and shouted praises in response to what God had stirred in their hearts to do. The foundation of the temple had been laid. And is that where it, is that where it ends? Like everybody goes home, and everybody's thankful now, and everybody's rejoicing, and everybody walks away happy and kicking their heels as they celebrate over what God has done. Is that how it ends? Sadly, it's not. Look at verse 12. But many of the priests and the Levites and the heads of fathers' houses, old men who had seen the first house, wept with a loud voice when they saw the foundation of this house being laid, though many shouted aloud for joy, so that the people could not distinguish the sound of the joyful shout from the sound of the people's weeping. For the people shouted with a great shout, and the sound was heard far away. The people who had seen the original temple, the priests, the Levites, and the old men, they all, what was their response? They all cried. They wept aloud. In a loud voice, we're told, why did they weep? They weep because this temple's nothing compared to the first one. They weep because they remembered the first temple. And this one wasn't like the first one. The old one was better. And they grieved. Now, what does that reveal about them? At least for some of the older ones who had seen it, it reveals that their worship was misplaced. It was on the wrong thing. The people who had experienced the first temple were not satisfied with the beginnings of the second one. They saw the foundation being built and they wept aloud because their their hearts were more inclined to the building itself. What they thought and remembered as a better building. In some ways, it indicates that their worship was contingent upon their expectations. Their worship hinged on what their expectations of this building would be like. Their their worship was contingent upon their experiences of the past. I'm going to just ask you, has that been the case for you ever? Has that ever been the case for you? So many of us have past experiences in other church communities and other church families. Some of that's baggage. Some of that's good. Some of it's a mix. We all come into this with an experience. We all have ways we believe are best for the gathered worship of God. We, we all have ways we would prefer our gatherings to be. The songs that we sing, the prayers that we pray, the way in which we do children's ministry, or this week, the ways in which we do not do children's ministry outside of this, the way in which we would prefer to do discipleship or small groups or, or all of these things. But I'll say this for my heart and for your heart, because there are things about the, the ways in which we do things now that I don't like. Can I say that? 
as the guy who's standing up here. I mean, there are things that I think we could do better, and there are things that I don't really lean toward. So I say this for me. When our ways and our opinions become primary over the object of our worship, God, our worship is misplaced. Is it possible that you are worshiping your way rather than God? You ever look back on your past experiences and think, I I wish it could be just like I used to have it because that was a worshipful experience. That was where worship happened. Do you ever look back and and think about that, that one book that you read that just outlines all of the ways in which proper worship on a Sunday should be done, and you think, well, but that's not how we're doing it. Wish it could be like that. Or in an age of online church from all over the world, do you ever think, well, I wish we did it like that because it looks real flashy when I watch it on YouTube. We could do it like that. Is it possible that a part of your restoration, yours, friend, your restoration, your coming to a right understanding of worshiping God, is it possible that a part of your restoration is a confession that your worship has been misplaced? That, that somehow you've made the worship of God more about you and your way than the God who has called you in to be near him. Is it possible? Just apply that. Let it sink. Ezra chapter 3, the entire chapter is about the worship of God, isn't it? It's about the importance of and the priority of the worship of God for God's people. They, they return to their land and they begin to unpack their boxes from years of exile, and their priority is to immediately go back to work rebuilding the altar, the very place where sin is covered, where atonement happens, where they move toward the worship of God as their sin has been covered. Restoration begins with the dealing of sin. It must, it must. Only when the separation between God and us is dealt with and restored are we able to worship him for who he truly is. Only when that separation is dealt with. The people had to rebuild the altar first so that they could then begin rebuilding the temple, the place where they would gather together to worship. What is revealed about your heart, about my heart, as you think about this? Consider that. We're bringing it down. We're we're closing this out. What's revealed about your heart as you think about what we've just walked through? How's the spirit been been poking? Do you recognize the necessity of atonement to restore right relationship with God? Or have you become numb to the idea that sin is an offense against God and it's not really a priority to think about This is just a place where I can come and get affirmed. And it's that, to be sure, but it's that grounded on on the truth of the gospel. Our sins still have to be dealt with. Listen, though, listen, please. And they have been. When Jesus offered himself as a sacrifice, it wasn't like the priests offering sacrifices of animals daily, weekly, annually. When Jesus offered himself as a sacrifice for us, the need for an altar was removed. Our sins have been removed from us. Psalm 103 tells us as far as the east is from the west. How far is that? 
can't think about it. Like it's just beyond our imagination what that looks like. Our, our sins have been removed. When Jesus came, that's what happened. God no longer looks at an altar. God no longer looks at a temple to find his people following perfect regulations of sacrifice and worship. He looks at his son and he sees perfection. Jesus, who is perfect for us, restoring us back to right relationship with him, the father. The priority of dealing with our sin has been accomplished in Jesus so that the new priority of worshiping God freely is right in front of us day after day, week after week. Praise God. Right? My alone? Praise God for that. That's the gospel. We, we sang it earlier. The song was called The Gospel. That Jesus gave his life, that he rose from the dead, that we're called to be perfect. We cannot be perfect. Our unrighteousness is deserving of death. Jesus died for us, becomes our righteousness so that we can approach God in worship. When you begin to unpack your week, is the priority of the gospel of Jesus revealed or shoved aside? Sins forgiven, God alone is worshiped. That's my prayer for us. Let's pray. God, we recognize this morning that we are in need. And while we don't have an altar and we don't have sacrifices that are offered, we do have the sacrifice of Jesus. Once for all, he gave us life so that we could have access to you. And so I pray, God, that our sincerity of worship would be there. My prayer is that we would have priorities straight about coming to you. My prayer is that we would not long for something from the past, but look forward to what you're uh, doing ahead of us and that there's, there's um, a place for us to worship you because of what Jesus has done. Would you help us to think through that well? And God, I pray that we would be growing and, and that you would be at work restoring us, renewing us, even bringing revival to us as a people, even in our weaknesses, which we've felt over the last months. Would you restore us and make us new, we ask, as we come and celebrate the truth of the gospel being displayed in physical form, the bread and the wine. Would we worship you all the more? All these things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.